0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 284 To the City, with Alexander Christie Miller. Today, we have an interview with a British journalist who was the Turkish correspondent for the Times newspaper between 2010 and 2017. He's written a book called To the City about the people who live along the Theodosian walls in Istanbul today. Normally, I don't touch on the modern world in this podcast. But this book seemed ideal for those of you who have visited Istanbul or plan to and want to know more about the people who live there now. Alexander Christie Miller spoke to dozens of people who live in the vicinity of the walls and tells their stories. Most of them have seen their lives transformed by the changes which have taken place in Turkey in the past 50 years. He also recounts the story of the 1453 Siege of the City by Mehmet, and sees how that event is remembered and used by today's political leaders. The book is a wonderful read. It really taught me far more about life in Turkey than any amount of news articles or Google searches can, and I would thoroughly recommend it to any of you who want to know more, particularly to those of you who've been to see the Byzantine ruins and are curious about how they are viewed by the locals, the state of preservation, and the intense feelings that the past can provoke. Alexander Christie Miller is from Wiltshire in the UK, studied in Dublin, and was then in Istanbul for seven years. He was the Times-Turkish correspondent during that period, and his writing has also appeared in Newsweek, The Atlantic, De Spiegel, and The White Review, amongst other publications. To the City is available now from William Collins Books, and as many of you know, to the city is a Greek phrase, istin poli, which gave us the modern word, Istanbul. Alexander Christie Miller, welcome to
1: the podcast. Thank you for having me on.
0: Not at all. Um, it's really good to speak to you. I so enjoyed the book. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. You were sent to be the Times newspaper's Turkish correspondent back in 2010. How much did you know about Turkey before you went? And and what was your first impression of the country?
1: Um well it's in fact I wasn't sent to be the Times correspondent I, I decided to go out there I'd um I'd been working I was working as a researcher on the Times foreign desk and um, I I knew I wanted to get into foreign correspondence and um, I was I was working uh, on, on a local newspaper at the same time and I got into the car at work one day and I put on the radio and you know when you hear a uh, uh, you turn on midway through a radio show and you hear, so then talking about something, but the vital information of where this place is wasn't there. So I was listening to this show and they were describing the, the music and the nightlife and the food and everything in this particular neighbourhood. And then finally, at the end, they repeated that it was Istanbul that they were talking about. And I thought, hey, maybe I could go there. And that sort of set, thing, set the idea in my mind. And then uh, when I talked to the Times, they said their correspondent was leaving. So, um, so they said I could pitch stories to them. Um, if I went there, so I sort of slightly went there on a on a slight hope that they might give me work, um, but it ended up you know it ended up going very well and um uh and and you know to go back to your question I, I I knew before I came to Turkey I knew very little about it you know I did a lot of sort of fevered reading and talking to other journalists and that sort of thing and analysts before I went out there um, but. Uh, but it was a completely new move for me, um, and um, yeah, it was a it was a you know fascinating place, fascinating place to arrive to. It was you know 2010 was this time in Turkey when it was uh, you know politically really really there there were some tremendous changes going on and there was a lot going on um, internationally. You had the Syrian uh, uprising began fairly shortly after I arrived. Um, endless elections, sort of an election almost every year. <laughs> so um, so there was a lot to write about and a lot to learn.
0: Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons I enjoyed the book so much, because sometimes when someone's very immersed in a place or a topic, they forget what they don't know, you know, or what they didn't know before they started. And so you explain things very well as uh, from the perspective that most listeners will come to it. Um, not knowing that much um so can you tell the listeners what your job was like as a foreign correspondent what were you expected to do with your days um how, how much did they expect you to know what people were thinking on the street
1: um so it was really it was it was very much uh Uh, you know, work was, I think, I think we should say quite seasonal in the sense that um, if there was a lot going on in the country at any one time, you might be expected to write a story every day. Um, uh, But then there might, there might be a couple of months where um, there's not a huge amount going on uh, of a level that would interest, you know, a newspaper's foreign desk. And so then, you know, you spend your time working out things to write about and sending them ideas, um, you know, trying to get them interested and then trying to convince them that a certain topic is of, of a level of importance that would make an international newspaper. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I was, I, w- I, w- I wasn't their employee, so I was able to write for other people too. So I was writing for a few other publications. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, I think initially, you know, you you, you work out what's going on from from uh, from uh, you know talking to analysts, uh, you know, following the Turkish press, um, and and you know talking to colleagues and that sort of thing, um, and then you know as time went on and my sort of language skills improved, then then I would uh, you know you know as time goes on, you get more and more sort of oafy uh, with 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 the sort of with the general political situation but I mean one of the things I talk about in the book is is that you know Turkey is such a complicated country I mean I think any country is complicated you know it's sort of a facile thing to say in a way but um but you know the better I got to know the country the more uncomfortable I became with the kind of tone of authority that you're expected to take as a as a foreign correspondent because you know I often thought about the fact that if I was writing about England, I would be quite hesitant to make the same kind of pronouncements. You know, I was I was being called on to make about Turkey and the same kind of sweeping analysis of political things. I'd be terrified to do that in England. And I kind of thought it's only really a certain level of ignorance and distance that, that gives me the confidence to do that of another country. And so when so writing the book was really a kind of a way to try and, change that relationship slightly and to try and and, uh and and write in a more ambivalent way and to you know meet meet ordinary people who were interesting but possibly not not the kind of people who you would typically have in having the news um and um and and sort of tell turkey's story through their stories really so yeah which
0: you do a wonderful job of i mean the the book is filled with Really fascinating glimpses into people's lives um how easy is it to get to know local people because many of them tell you very personal details and life stories and uh how hard was that to gain people's trust or or are people quite willing to to talk to you
1: um so i spoke to a lot of people and um and you know very many of them you know didn't end up in the book um you know, it's partly the people who I who I wrote about were people who I built a good rapport with, and um, and also on a, on a basic level, I, I chose to write about people who I who I felt sure were being honest with me, who I felt like weren't weren't trying to manipulate me, which is very often when someone's speaking to a journalist or a writer, you know, that they've got some political agenda and they're trying to push that, or they want they want you to believe something. Um, and, uh, and, you know, people are generally, you know, most people are generally pretty open when you're, um, when you are writing, you know, when you want, want to ask them about their lives. And when you particularly, one thing which made my, the process easier was the fact that I could go in and say, that I'm writing a book about the city walls, um, rather than I'm writing a, you know, a sort of sensitive political Know on sensitive political subjects, there there are a lot of things I could have gone in with which would have probably scared people off. Um, you know, there there are, it definitely varies from between different sections of society. So, for example, um, the sort of very conservative, uh, Islamic sections of society can sometimes be more closed in these sort of small communities. There were a couple of communities I went to which were just very, very closed. And, you know, I went and spoke to someone and you could see that their agenda was, why is this guy here? He probably has some ulterior motive. And I, I'm just going to answer his questions and get rid of him as quickly as possible. Um, interestingly, it was also the same with the, you know, the room community, the, 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 the Greek, the Greek, uh, you know, I recount in the book how I met the, 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 pr- the priest from, uh, from the, um, uh, the monastery um, uh, at uh, Balukla um and uh, which is you know by salivra kappa and um and you know he he was very much like no i can't talk to you and i think i think among those communities there's sometimes a reticence because they sort of they're quite vulnerable and they feel like talking to an outsider could bring unwanted attention on themselves um but uh no there was no shortage of people who are happy to talk about their their lives so yeah
0: yeah no it's so interesting and um you just get a really nice cross section of people in different circumstances with who've experienced the great change uh, that's gone on in the city across the last you know fifty seventy years. Um, uh, the, the Byzantine land walls provide the kind of framing device for the book. Most of the people you talk to um, that you record in the book uh, lived or worked in uh, the vicinity of the walls. Um, why did you cho- choose to focus on that area? for context uh, Istanbul is now a mega city um some listeners may not be aware that the majority of people don't live anywhere near the walls or even on the same continent as the walls so it wasn't necessarily an obvious choice as it might seem to us um, as as people interested in Byzantine history so when did you first discover the walls and and why did they strike you as a as an interesting part of
1: the city um so really so i first you know i first walked along the walls i think in 2012 or something um and then and then i came back there to report on a story a few years later um and um and you know from when i first saw them you know they just struck me as this sort of extraordinary piece of urban geography um that encapsulate something which i'd observed about istanbul which is it's this place where you have this extraordinary rich history, um, which stretches back for millennia and you can still see it there in the streets. It's there, it's often very neglected. And all around you, there's also this sort of massive change going on. And this, this, you know, it, it is this huge mega city, um, which is just steaming ahead. And I, I sort of wonder, Wondered how is it that this heritage is surviving and and it has has endured through all this time when you know this city has seen these massive changes you know not only now but also in the past um it 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 seemed it just seemed very interesting to me that that you know that you have places somewhere like the walls at all when you think that most other european cities or, or most cities around the world have you know their 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 city walls are gone or 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 either that or they' or they're very restored or um so um so it was really that that drew me to them and and initially I thought that I would write an essay about them or something like that right not write a sort of long article and then the more I thought about it and the more I started interviewing I was like you know I could do a portrait of Turkey through this through this place because you have all these different kinds of communities living there. Um, and it just seemed like such a rich sort of seam that I thought, no, you know, this, this could be a book. Um, and, um, and, you know, the other, the other way to answer your question really is that, is that, you know, if there's a theme underlying the book, it's a theme of change. And, uh, you know, the sort of fear of change, the destruction that change brings, the sort of fear of catastrophic change and obviously that's something which is thematically um absolutely tied in with the walls and their construction and their history because you know they were they were built as this uh, you know as a way of, uh, of obviously saving the city from disaster at a time when your city being captured and sacked meant you know the end of the world you know for, in in a way and um and uh, and then, you know, the story of their capture by Mehmet is is another sort of episode of that. Um, and that's something that I feel like re- resonates in the present day in a sort of thematic way now that we're also living through this period of, of immense and, you know, potentially catastrophic change. So I wanted to sort of tie those two things together um, and uh, the walls, you know, w- were the perfect device for that, really.
0: Yeah absolutely um uh, the book is obviously dealing with people's everyday lives it's not about byzantine history specifically so what did people did people talk about the walls at all in your conversations obviously some of these people live in neighborhoods you know near the wall but they're not looking at the walls some people really did live right up next to them um did they were they just another part of the life like another house another road or did people refer to them as not not literally byzantine but you know oh those those walls those roman walls you know did did the, the walls as a historical object come up at all in conversation or not really
1: no they did i mean most of the people i spoke to had a sense that they were lucky to live in this historic area with this with this you know great history attached to it and that you know they lived in a special place um and uh you know it depends really on on which section of the walls you go to because there are many areas of it which are which are very wild and lawless like as, as probably some of your listeners will probably know you know that the the land walls of istanbul are are you know it's about 200 feet from the inside of the inner wall to the to the outside of the moat so so almost calling it a wall is misleading because it's this huge sort of section in the city you know in in the in its in, in its environment and and often it's quite um it's quite kind of lawless and and you know no one is really looking after it so people would sometimes refer to it as this place of crime and this sort of problem next to them because because it you know it wasn't Part of their neighbourhood. It wasn't part. Of, it wasn't controlled by anyone. It was a place where criminals could go and where all that sort of thing. So, um, uh, so you sometimes heard it discussed, you know, a, a, as a as a problematic thing. And the, but then also, you know, I talked to, to 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 people who remembered as kids going and exploring around there and how much fun they had, you know, as kids going around in big groups and exploring in the Animas dungeon and that sort of thing, and um, and and so clearly, it's very kind of several of the people I spoke to. It was clearly something that had kind of inspired them and made a huge imprint on their on their childhood. You know, one one of the characters in the book um, was uh, had trained as a restoration architect. You know, really as a as a result of having grown up around there and and seen these these uh, you know crumbling buildings around him. Um, you know another another character in the book I don't know if i I don't know if I mentioned it in the end in the actual text, um, but he had when he'd been at school he, he'd done his own project to imagine the restoration of the walls in which he'd wanted to create a walkway that would go across the you know glass walkway so that you could walk along the top of them you know the whole way along. Um, and um, so so I think it's definitely, uh, definitely, people feel a connection to them. I mean, you know, maybe we could talk more about, you know, their their meaning in broader Turkish uh, society. But um, but uh, but you know, I think it's impossible for anyone to live near them and not have a sort of, you know, a strong sense of, of place. You know,
0: yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I mean, there's no particular reason it should, but does Byzantine history come up in everyday conversation? Because this is a a question listeners ask um or does it seem like roman ruins seem to us in england like why would that come up in conversation unless you're specifically talking about the romans
1: it's funny i mean obviously it's um uh you know the short answer is no it doesn't come up hugely often in 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 everyday in everyday conversation but actually i'd never thought about it before but the comparison between uh britain you know roman history in britain is quite a good one because i think in britain we also have a sense that roman ruins are somehow foreign you know the romans came here and then they left and then and then um that it's not quite you know it, it's it, it's it's our heritage but it's not but it's somehow also slightly foreign and um in, in turkey it's the same but um but that foreignness is a far more charged issue because you know, the Turkish Republic is is 100 years old and um when Turkey was created um you know at the after the, the the first world war um there had been this effort by the victorious allies after you know the Ottoman Empire was defeated in world war one and the allies had tried to impose this treaty that would effectively have dismembered uh Anatolia and um you know parts would have gone to the Greeks um, you know, there would be, uh, you know, parts would have gone to, to different different countries, and um, uh, and um, and this really helped create in the Turkish psyche this fear of dismemberment and this fear of foreign powers coming in and taking their land away from them. And you know, that had also been preceded by the by the Balkan wars and really a sort of uh, nearly a century of warfare in which the Ottoman Empire had slowly collapsed, really as a result of its Christian uh, constituents, um, deciding they wanted their own states and, you know, the, the, the sort of the ideology of nationalism taking hold. Um, and, um, and so there's a very deep fear among a lot of people in Turkey that that by drawing attention to the non-Muslim heritage um, in, uh, in you know, in, in, in Istanbul and Anatolia, you know, there's an agenda of they they worry that 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 you know basically these people might come and want to take, take stuff back um and um I, I think it's possibly not quite as intense now as it used to be um but it's very much still there and um and there's a sort of you know there, there, obviously there are a lot of people who are fascinated by and interested in the Byzantine history and also feel a sense of continuity between you know themselves as residents of istanbul and the past residents and like this kind of multicultural idea but there's also on the nationalist side there's there's a lot of kind of uh um uh you know hostility i'd say to the to the Byzantine past to some degree
0: yeah well that was one of the things i found most interesting about the book because um listeners who come on the tours with me with with the with the nicest of intentions i think sort of probe as to why the Byzantine ruins aren't presented like they might be in a Western European city, um, as sort of, um, beautifully preserved bits of the past. And so I think they, they understand there's a sense of tension with, um, with modern Turkey and its relationship with the past, but you bring that out in the book really well. And in a way that really, um, helped me understand things because I think, I think particularly as, as a a British person, obviously Western, um, Western nationalism is is sort of what set the world on this path to sort of nation states, and I think in particularly in Britain, where the geography makes it very clear where Britain is and isn't, we just take nationalism for granted. Whereas somewhere like Turkey, it's a much newer idea. And and you sort of talk about you know the conflicts with with Greek people, with Armenian people, even with um, Kurdish and Alevi minorities and things. You know, not to get too much into the politics of it, but just that what it means to be turkish feels much more fragile and much more contested was that your sense of it as a as an outsider
1: um yeah i mean you could say fragile or you could say very strong you know yeah. like, you know it's like in a way in a way maybe we're saying the same thing but um but uh, it's some um, yeah you know th- there's this you know nationalism in turkey is a is a is an incredibly you know it, it, it's it really is the glue that holds the country together you know nationalism and, and islam and um uh and um they that is yeah p- partly as a result of the fact that it is was consolidated as a nation state very recently and also you know when you talk to to turkish people and ask them about where they come from you know very often if they go back you know that they they, they you know, a, a lot of um uh, turkeys, you know, a lot a lot of a lot of Turks can trace their roots back to the Balkans or back to to you know other other places, um and um uh, it's uh what was I going to say? Hold on, um, yeah. So the other interesting thing about Turkey is that it's 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 a post-imperial country. So, you know, you have, it has, Turks have this sense of themselves as the heirs to this to this great empire, you know, the Ottoman empire, and, um, uh, or, you know, a lot of Turks feel that way. Um, and so, you know, you, that creates kind of, you know, a, a sort of certain, uh, you know, nationalist sentiment um, but it's also, in, in, it has some characteristics of a, of a post-colonial society as well, in that, you know, Ataturk, who founded the country and who was this great hero in that he, he kicked out the European powers and he kicked out Greece. Um, uh, he, you know, having won that, he then set the country on this sort of radicalised Western course. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of Turks who didn't like that have kind of grown up with this slight resentment of feeling that they've had a foreign culture imposed on them, um, and so between those two things, that sort of post-colonial mentality and that post-imperial mentality, it makes for a very kind of um, quite quite a quite a strident form of nationalism sometimes, um, uh, and and yeah, you know, I think people live with a sense of threat that, particularly in a country like Britain, I think we find hard to hard to appreciate because you know, we have not faced it in the same way. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I won't talk more about uh, modern politics because I try to avoid it, but that's one of the most interesting parts of the book. and And I think, as I said before, it will really appeal to people who aren't very, um, knowledgeable about modern Turkish politics because you explain it very well. And, um, so I really enjoyed that. So on a lighter note. Uh, <laughs> um when I was about to go to Istanbul for the first time I was looking at the land walls on on um Google Street View and uh, I'm sure we've all had this experience where you you're looking at a street say in your own city and and a bus is following your view down the road you know because the cameras who took it. So the bus keeps obscuring the shops or the parking signs you're trying to see. So I went to one end of the walls. And every time I moved, more dogs appeared, alarmingly, <laughs> dozens and dozens of dogs. And I thought, what's going on here? And thankfully, your book answered that question. So <laughs> yeah. um, visitors to Istanbul immediately noticed the street dogs and the, and cats. Um, but you got to know some of the street dogs very well. And um, can you tell the listeners about that and also about the, the street dog culture in Istanbul?
1: um yeah so i um you know i i I very much wanted to include i I like writing about animals and the relationship between humans and animals and um and and for no particularly logical reason i decided to start i was walking on the walls and i found this animal shelter there and i just thought okay i'm going to volunteer here for a bit and um and uh um, yeah it's one of the thing that strikes you when you live in Istanbul is that there is this quite extraordinary um, culture of street animals where you have dogs and cats who live on the street um, and are ostensibly strays but they're sort of looked after by the community in general and I remember particularly I mean it's important to say that this isn't universal throughout the city this tends to be in certain neighborhoods, in in probably more affluent areas, or that there are there are there are large parts of the city where you know the stray dogs are miserable. Council will gather them up and leave them on the outskirts of the city and that sort of thing. But um, but it's very clear in a lot of the city that there's this culture where people look after these street animals. I and mean, one thing that really struck me was um, I was visiting a friend and there was a street uh, there was a dog that had been hit by a car or something. And a lot of local people in the area just clubbed together and paid for its vet fees to go and have its leg fixed, um, and you know people feed them, people look after them. Same with cats, you know, even anything more so with cats. And um, uh, and you know, when I looked into this, I saw that this is something which has gone on for for centuries, and that um, European visitors who were visiting the you know Ottoman Istanbul, uh, you know. 400 years ago we're, we're noting the same thing and remarking on the same thing and um and so you know I, I i wanted to write about that a as a way of talking about you know the the placing the story within the context of our relationship with nature and 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 what it means to um uh know we have a human world and we have a and we have a a natural world and and what struck me as so interesting about the ottoman attitude is that is that at that time europeans really thought nothing of animals you know they they were they were like objects you could use um whereas the ottomans you know they they didn't you know they, they didn't think they were people but they in some way they regarded them as legitimate denizens of the city and and you know there were there were organizations which raised money to give meat to stray dogs, you know, in Ottoman times. And, um, you know, they 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 cared for them in the same way that they would care for these guilds of beggars who lived in Ottoman Istanbul and lived on the streets and with a sort of focus of charity. Um and um, and uh, and and you know that that um that tradition has changed, but it still sort of in some form survives. Um and it has it's very interesting the way it now interacts with this, with our more modern view of animal welfare, where you know, a lot of people would say, look at these dogs, they're they're kind of miserable, you know, they're on the streets, they're not, they're they're not very healthy, they look mangy. Um, They sometimes bite people, Um, you know, they shouldn't be here. Um, And uh, to which, you know, a lot of Turkish people would answer, well, you know, what are you going to do? You're going to spay them out of existence, like, that's not fair. (laughs) So it raises this very interesting and difficult moral question about how you, you know, what you do, how our relationship with animals And uh, and yeah, you know, I I actually have, I actually own an Istanbul street dog now. I bought one back from back to England, Um, and um, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, that's brilliant. And you you volunteered for a while in a um, shelter right by the walls. Yes, exactly, right on the
1: walls, and it was and it was a wonderful place to be because it was really like you know, um, it's it's it was very. Picturesque. I mean, it stank, you know. And I describe in the book, you know, all the the dog shit everywhere, and it was (laughs) it was quite unpleasant in some ways. But um, but it was also uh, it felt like quite a special thing to to do because it just took me so completely out of my ordinary life in Istanbul, um, and uh, and yeah, yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah,
0: it's another lovely part of the book. Um, well, let's uh, let's wrap up, and obviously, I encourage people to. To go and buy the book um, and discover more. But uh, what other things did you love about Turkey? What 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 things did you really enjoy? Um, one you could mention, which I particularly enjoyed hearing, was the the ornate and specific expressions in ah, okay. social interactions.
1: Um, yeah. So so it, it's interesting uh, in in um in. At one point in the book, actually, when I'm talking about the dogs, I, I refer there's this incredibly, I would recommend anyone to read the, the, the letters of, uh, of um, Ogier, I don't know, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but he was a Flemish diplomat in uh, Istanbul during the time of Suleiman the Magnificent, so when when the empire was absolutely at its height, um, Ogier Giselaan de Busbek, I'm probably completely mispronouncing that, but um, and he wrote four Turkish letters in in Latin, of his time when he was um, uh, uh, on, on an embassy, I think from the Holy Roman Emperor um, in Istanbul. And he was kind of kept there as a hostage in sort of a friendly way for quite a long time. And he writes these incredibly funny, vivid letters about his time. And one of the most memorable things to me was was when he writes about how um, he's seeing the, the robes that the Ottomans wear, and that they wear these long robes, and he's admiring how how good they look in them and how they make them look taller and and then he sort of compares it with his own with his own clothes which he says are very kind of tight and ill-fitting and, and he I think he says something like discloses parts of the body which would be better not disclosed and something like that um, and it's very interesting because you know in in, in you know Obviously, in later years, when the Ottomans became the sick man of Europe, you know, Europeans would come and to look down on, 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 on the world around them and, and on, you know, on the Ottoman world. But this was from a time when he was going there and he sort of couldn't help but feel like he, he was, you know, entering into a society which was more successful, better functioning, that sort of thing. Um, and, and, and you know, I, I compare that in the book to my feeling of um, going back to England and you know in, in turkish you have um a, a huge array of phrases um for you know different social situations um you know you you have you have you know you say get olsun if something's gone wrong you say passion if someone's died um you say all, there are all kinds of different things and um and english doesn't have nearly as many of those and uh and and i found like uh that 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 when i moved back to england i kind of missed them i missed i, I sort of particularly the one gets Soon, which literally means may it, you know may it be in, may it be in the past or may it be done with um and you know if someone's been sick or if something bad has happened to many kind of bad things happen to them that's what you say um and um and uh you know there wasn't really in english you'd say what well, sorry i'm you know get well soon there's somehow they all seem slightly more awkward in comparison um, and um and so yeah so i love that side of it it's a it's a it's a country where um you know there's a huge amount of social tension and there's a huge amount of polarization but there's also I, I found a sense that these small social um you know social niceties kind of have an importance to them um and uh and so yeah that was one thing that i that i that i liked one of many things you know i, I love the food i love It's a a wonderful, wonderful country. (laughs) Um, Fantastic.
0: Well, uh, To the City, Life and Death along the Ancient Walls of Istanbul is available now. And uh, I encourage everyone to go out and get it. Alexander Christie Miller, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: After we wrapped up, uh, Alexander said he wanted to actually add something about why it's so difficult uh, for the municipality to actually preserve the entire section of the land walls.
1: So it always seemed interesting to me that uh, you know that somewhere like the walls was in a state of neglect, whereas you know obviously you have these former churches which are now mosques, which are all which are all in a in a state of you know which are which are cared for uh, very intensely. And I think that you know there is a big difference between you know the the religious buildings in uh, that the Byzantines left behind a kind of appropriatable property and, you know, they can be taken, they can be repurposed, they can be used and given another life. Whereas um, the secular Byzantine buildings, um, especially, and, you know, I think especially if they're in some way, a symbol of, or a reminder of Byzantine power um, are more difficult to kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're harder to, to ideologically appropriate into the sort of, you know, uh, um, uh, the the new the new sort of state I guess. And um and uh and it's interesting that um you know one of the buildings that's recently been restored, which is the the pal- palace of the I'm sorry I'm gonna do a mispronunciation here, but the palace of the porphyrogenitos Um and that would that stood derelict for a long time and now it's been restored. But inside it there are actually displays of Ottoman um ceramics and calligraphy. So it's 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 like there's a there's very much like the use of there's there's a big issue over the restoration and the use of buildings and particularly the um the current government uh was, maybe maybe get into this but the current government has this we have this view in the west but particularly that you know you restore a monument as it was at a certain point in time and then you open it for people to look at and that's kind of that's what its function is. But there's more of a mentality in, 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 particularly among the current government in Turkey, that these buildings should have a purpose and they should have a function. That they, 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 it's legitimate for them to take it to completely remake them and to use them for some new purpose. And so very often that's what you see. Um, and um, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I was going with that anyway.
0: No, that's really interesting though. I mean, that is. That's sort of what I was getting at. That listeners bring with them the assumption of how thing how historical items should be displayed, and yeah. actually, other cultures can have a different attitude and a different perspective.
1: Exactly. And the other important point, specifically in the case of the walls, is that you know they're they're hu- they're huge. You know they they go they stretch four miles. Um, re- restoring them is a massive job, and also they're not you know they're not the Hagia Sophia then they they they're never going to they're not quite as easily monetizable as some of the other you know big attractions in Istanbul so they would be tremendously expensive to restore um, they're probably not going to make that much money um, as tourist attractions and then also you know the work of restoring them requires a a sort of a continuous political will on the part of the city's authorities, which you know has has never really been there. You know, partly, you know, that there have been restoration attempts and there have been bits done here and there. But then the municipality which is, you know, the municipal administration which is doing the work loses power and then the next one comes along and has different priorities. Um, You know, you have overlapping jurisdictions in terms of who's in charge of different bits. So there's a number of quite practical um considerations which kind of conspire to 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 to, to make it unlikely that they're gonna be fully restored, I think. Yeah, absolutely.
0: To the city is also available on Audible. So if you'd like to listen to the book, you can find it there. And if you'd like to listen for free, then sign up at Audibletrial.com forward slash Byzantium, where you'll get One month's free membership, and you can keep the book if you decide not to continue with Audible's service. Or like me, you can get sucked into listening to uh, book after book after old radio show after all the amazing things in Audible's collection.